Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And this is the first one of 2024. Uh, today's guest is John Cash, who's the chairman of the board and chief executive officer and president of UR Energy, who engaged in the identification, acquisition, exploration and development, um, and also the operation of uranium projects. Um, and they currently own and operate the Lost Creek in situ recovery uh, uranium facility in South Central Wyoming. Um, John has over 30 years of experience in uranium exploration um, and covered many, obviously, many different uh, areas of uranium, including sort of safety, regulatory, legislation and affairs, uranium recovery and operations, um, and being involved in international trade, um, as well as extensive uh, management experience. Um, before joining UR Energy, um, he's worked for some of the established uh, uranium mining companies, including BHP, uh, Rio Algom Mining, and Crowbutt, who Crowbutt Resources, who are a subsidiary of Cameco. Um, John is going to talk about on um, why venture capitalists are so hot on nuclear energy uh, at the moment, um, the future energy uh, supply of uranium, also uranium stocks and EFTs, and how. Uh, geopolitics, political risks and project development challenges uh, can constrain global uh, uranium supply um, and how to tackle uh, this uh, looming shortfall. So with no further ado, that's welcome, John, to the podcast. How are you doing, John? Hey, doing really well, Rob. Uh, thanks uh, for having me on the podcast. Looking forward to it. It certainly is an exciting time in the uranium space. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, and as we always start these podcasts off, I just wondered if you could... Uh, um, tell the audience, uh, those that don't know you, um, a little bit about yourself, about your career, how your career has developed to sort of where you are today. Yeah, no, I'm glad to do that, Rob. I'm a bit of an unusual character in that I've spent my entire career in the uranium space. So uh, even when I was in college, I was working for some of the majors, helping them out a little bit with uh, exploration as a summer student. And so for 30 years now, uh, this, you know, this marks my 30th year, believe it or not in the space, uh, doing exploration geology. Um, I'm a trained geologist and uh, started off doing that. Later on, moved into regulatory affairs. And uh, not too long after that, moved into production, ran a well field and mine uh, for Cameco. And, uh, but most recently I've been with UR Energy, been here for 17 years now, started off doing regulatory affairs, permitted two of our flagship properties and about a year and a half ago, uh, filled the uh, seat of the CEO. And uh, it's been an exciting time. Uh, definitely uh, had good timing there. And uh, like I said, uranium price has been moving north. And it's an exciting time in the space. I'm glad to be here with such a good company with good production. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, you've been in the in uranium industry for 30 years. How comes you've, I suppose, dedicated your whole career in uranium and not moved moved away into other commodities? You know, good question. I, I, I don't really have a good answer, just how things played out. Uh, 
you know, when I was in college, uh, working on my bachelor's and master's degree in geology, uh, BHP reached out to me and said, hey, we need a summer student to help out cutting core, logging core. So that's where I got introduced into it. Really wasn't looking specifically to jump into the uranium space, but got started there. And then uh, once I had graduated, uh, got a full-time job with BHP doing exploration again, uh, looking for uranium. And uh, that didn't uh, continue in the U.S. The BHP really shut down their exploration here in uh, the U.S. and uh, had an opportunity to come out west to Wyoming. And uh, ironically, uh, really wasn't my choice, wasn't what I was specifically looking for, but it was another job in uranium and uh, I've stuck with it ever since. It's really treated my wife and I really well and uh, glad we've stuck it out in this commodity. Uh, can't complain at all. Yeah. Um, so I just wondered if you can just tell us a little bit about uh, UR Energy, um, about the company and the structure of the company, and then we'll talk about the, the projects afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. So in 2004, uh, our founders uh, had the foresight to say, look, the price of uranium has been depressed for a long time. It's going to be coming back around and uh, let's form a company. They formed a private company uh, to start building up some assets and build the company, start moving toward production so that when the price did come around, they would be well positioned. So that was in 2004. The focus really was on the Athabasca Basin, uh, Canadian exploration. Uh, not too long after that, the company went public, started trading shares on the TSX, the Toronto Exchange. Uh, under the symbol U-R-E, and uh, but they realized very quickly, we're working in the Athabasca Basin of Canada. It's very high risk, high reward. It's very expensive. And so one of the uh, directors uh, said, hey, look, as we form the company and as we grow, why don't we look in the U.S.? We can pick up some assets that are amenable to in situ mining. Uh, it's going to be lower risk, lower cost. They're not going to be as large but we can make money and grow the company there. And then at some point, if we wish, we can move back into the Athabasca. So that's exactly what they did. And uh, 2005, they picked up several uh, land packages here in the U.S. in the state of Wyoming uh, that had known mineral resources on them and began to drill and finally made the decision, hey, we've got enough uranium here. Let's get the permits in place and move toward mining. So they initiated the uh, baseline data collection got the permits they needed. And uh, really, uh, by 2012, the company had grown to the point where they had the permits, the land package, uh, they were ready to go and started building out the mine at Lost Creek. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. But that was the formation, really essentially starting in Canada, moving into the U.S. Uh, to really get a grip with production. And that's where we are now. We're a producing my uh, uranium company, uh, one of the very, very few publicly traded companies in the world that mine uranium. Uh, you know, effectively, it's Cameco and us, and there are a couple of others that are starting to produce uh, companies like Encore uh, in Boss in Australia, but it's a very small arena. Most global production for uranium is controlled by state-owned entities. So when you're looking for an investment in the space, you can count the companies on one hand that are actually putting pounds in the can. Um, just wanted to give us an update on the operations at uh, Lost Creek, uh, uranium mine, um, and also your forward production portfolio. Yeah, sure. So late last year, the price of uranium was beginning to come up, and we made the decision, hey, we've not been producing much, but things are starting to look pretty good. 
We started signing some uh, good long-term contracts. In fact, we have three of those signed up now. And that gave us the uh, faith we needed to say, let's ramp production back up and move that direction. So we made that announcement. And in the spring of this year, we began the hiring process, bringing contractors on and uh, ramping up flow and production. And that's come along. It's not been easy, Rob. And let me tell you, uh, there's so many challenges in the world today that we didn't face five, six years ago. Uh, manpower has been a significant challenge. Getting contractors has been a significant challenge. Supply chain issues has been a challenge. But one by one, we've been ticking those off. And I'm happy to say that we've got two new production areas that are up and running uh, with good flow, good head grade. We're going to be bringing a third area into production here uh, before the end of the year. And so things continue to improve. We continue to ramp up uh, the uh, quantity of production as we go. Uh, this year, we don't have very many pounds under contract. Uh, it's, we've already, in fact, delivered everything we need to this year. But going into next year, our contract book is 600,000 pounds. So our objective is to produce a minimum of 600,000 pounds next year from Lost Creek. And then in 2025, 2026, those contracts go up to 700,000 pounds. And then in subsequent years, we have under contract 600,000 pounds a year, but we're in advanced discussions right now with various utilities to sign up additional long-term contracts at even higher pricing. Uh, so we're happy about that. And uh, those first three contracts, they've really locked in some really strong revenues to protect the company. And going forward, we're looking for higher prices. So, yeah, we were very happy with uh, how the company's positioned today. Um, I understand, obviously, you utilize um, Institute te uh, technology to cover, obviously, uranium. Um, what's it in the, it's, sorry, what is in the uh, situ technology and why did you select that? Yeah, so... About 55% of the world's uranium now is recovered using in situ technology. Uh, in situ is a Latin word. It means in the place. So we don't have a conventional mine. We don't have underground workings or an open pit. We don't have tailings. Uh, so if you went out to our mine site, what you would see is a field. And about every 100 feet, you would see a little brown box that's a wellhead cover. But the field's got grass in it. Uh, the deer and the antelope play there, uh, rabbits, uh, you know, a lot of wildlife, but the disturbance on the surface is uh, really quite minimal. But in those wells, that's how we address the ore body. We inject CO2 and oxygen into the mineralized uranium zone. That dissolves the uranium in the aquifer. And then we simply pump that dissolved uranium back to the surface send it to a processing plant where we use ion exchange, which is a well-known technology, uh, to recover the uranium from the water. We don't waste the water there, though. We take that same water once the uranium has been removed, and we pump it back into the field, refortify it with CO2 and oxygen, send it back into the ground where it continues to dissolve that ore body. And we will continue to circulate that same water on the ore body until that part of the ore body is removed, and then we will advance to the next area to recover it. So uh, the, the advantage are, uh, advantages are the capital expenditure is minimal, the environmental footprint is very small, and the operating costs tend to be very low. And if you look at the global cost curve on uranium production, what you'll find is 
the lower 50% of production is really dominated by in situ mining and the higher cost mines, the upper 50% typically is dominated by conventional techniques. So when you've got the right geology and it's amenable to in situ, the world goes in situ. They only go conventional if the geology demands uh, that that's how it can be recovered. But we are fortunate that UR Energy, the assets that we have are amenable to in situ. So that's the technology that we've employed. Um, obviously, you mentioned, obviously, the, you got your permits. Um, being a, a recruiter and have recruited in the, the U.S. market, my understanding is it's difficult to uh, to permit um, permit mines. I just wondered um, why, why it is difficult and obviously how difficult it was for you guys to to permit your your um, your, your sites. Yeah. So uh, using Lost Creek as our primary example, uh, our Shirley Basin property is also permitted, but I'll talk about uh, Lost Creek primarily. There's a lot of baseline data collection for environmental uh, reasons that needs to occur. So in the U.S., you're looking at one to two years of baseline data collection. And then if you're in a federal process, that means you have to uh, fulfill the NEPA requirements. And uh, that's an exhaustive federal review with opportunities for public comment and public involvement. So you're probably looking at maybe a five-year minimum process if you're subject to uh, the federal regulations on NEPA. So, you know, you baseline plus you're permitting your uh, minimum seven years in the U.S. to get through that permitting process. That's assuming that there's no opposition. If there's public opposition and you don't have that social license, uh, that seven years could easily become 10 or 12 years uh, before you can get your permit. So it is a defined process. It's not that it's undefined. I mean, the regulations clearly lay out what the process will look like, uh, but the timing is not defined. And that's the issue. And that's why it can take so long. I know of one project in the U.S., I think they're maybe on their 14th year of permitting and uh, the end is not in sight. So it can take a very, very long time, especially if you don't have public support where you work. But that's really the challenge. And it's really the challenge is at the federal level. It's not at the local or state level, especially here in Wyoming, uh, where we have a very robust regulatory regime and strong support from the local community. It's really when you jump into that federal process where the uh, timelines are really undefined and things can really begin to drag out. Um, with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine um, and obviously other global unrest, um, what role does uh, geopolitics play uh, within the Iranian market? Oh, it's it's the tail that wags the dog. Um, and that's because Russia really is the big refiner of uranium in the world. Uh, after we mine uranium anywhere in the world, it has to go to the next step, which is conversion. And then the next step beyond that is enrichment. And Russia really dominates the world in those two steps with conversion and enrichment. And so as the world moves away from Russia, whether that be oil and gas or uranium, which the U.S. is working on right now, uh, the Western wor world just really struggles to make up that supply, uh, conversion and enrichment. So it's taken a long time for the Western converters and the Western enrichers to, to stand up and say, hey, we can backfill that supply if it gets cut off from Russia. And, uh, you know, this week has been a very exciting week in the uranium space. On Monday of this week, uh, the House in Congress, uh, U.S. Congress, 
passed a bill that would cut off Russian imports of uranium into the U.S. That's important because the U.S. is still the largest consumer of uranium in the world. And so that was cut off by the House. Now it has to go to the Senate. Uh, yesterday, they tried to pass that in the Senate without a vote. They needed a unanimous consent to do that. 99 of 100 senators said, yeah, we approve of that. There was one senator that was a fly in the ointment that said, no, we need to go to full debate and discussion on this. And so that's where it's headed now. Uh, but if you've already got 99 out of 100, it's likely going to pass. Uh, in response to that, uh, what we're hearing in the news, in fact, I read an article just this morning, is that Russia is looking to preemptively cut off that supply to the U.S., uh, if that happens, I think we're going to see a bit of a supply shock and price shock that goes along with that. So uh, we're watching the news very carefully today to see what's going to happen. So Russia is an important part of the story, but they are a refiner of, of uranium, not so much a miner. They do mine some, but their role really is in processing. However, to their south, their neighbor, Kazakhstan, that's where nearly 50% of the world's uranium comes from. That uranium out of Kazakhstan, the trade route goes through Russia and into the port at St. Petersburg. So as the West and East get entangled here in this issue, if that implicates that shipment of yellow cake out of Kazakhstan in any way, then Katie bar the door. That can put tremendous pressure on the market because, again, that's where half the world's uh, uranium is coming from. And will Vladimir Putin uh, put his thumb on Kazakh production? Uh, just to poke his finger in the eye of the West, I think he probably would. And so we're wa waiting to see what happens there, if Kazakhstan will still be able to ship their product out of the country. There are a couple of other alternate ways to get yellow cake out of Kazakhstan instead of going through Russia, but they're not well-established routes. In fact, they're very poor routes, and uh, it's questionable whether they can be scaled up or not. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens there. And it's also worth noting that Russia has significant ownership in several of the large uranium mines in Kazakhstan. So it's not just a geopolitical influence that they have over Kazakhstan. It's also direct ownership of some of those mines. So, yeah, it's uh, the geopolitics. It's uh, a key part of the story. And we haven't even really talked about national defense and uranium needs for uh, security, nuclear, navy and weapons and that angle uh, either. But, yeah, it's... Uh, the impact of geopolitics really is hard to overstate. Um, how does the sort of uranium market function uh, in terms of sales arrangements and markets? Um, and obviously, you mentioned that you've uh, you've secured some long term contracts. So I just wondered if you can uh, give our audience, um, I suppose, an overview of how how all of that works. Yeah. So in the uranium space, there are really kind of two markets, if you will: the long term and the spot. And the long-term, uh, some people just simply call it the term market or the long-term market, uh, but those usually are anywhere from three years on the minimum to 10 years on the maximum. Um, spot market uh, is more of an instantaneous sale that occurs within weeks or within a few months, so very quickly, but typically it's a one-time sale. It doesn't divide those deliveries out over time. But about 85% of the market is that term market or the long-term market. And the other 15, roughly 15% is the spot market. The utilities typically uh, dominate the term market. That's where they like to play uh, because they like to establish the security of the pricing in long-term markets and security of supply 
from uh, primary suppliers by doing that. Uh, on the spot market, the utilities will dabble there, but that's oftentimes hedge funds or traders that are playing in that spot market and playing some games there. But there is an important bifurcation there between the two markets. And very often the pricing between those two can be very different. Uh, right now, the long-term price is right around $66 a pound. And the spot market uh, yesterday was at $86 a pound. So there's a big delta between the two. Uh, the long-term price, it tends to be more stable and move more slowly whereas the spot market can be incredibly volatile and can lead or trail the, the uh, long-term uh, you know, going forward. So yeah, it's uh, right now everyone's keep keeping an eye on the spot market because it's so hot and so volatile. But I think in the, the uh, long-term that uh, term market will trail along and it will slowly catch up with that spot market uh, in 2024. Um, you, you mentioned obviously um, sort of uh, nuclear energy for, Obviously, um, the the U.S. forces. What what are your projections for uh, nu nuclear energy uh, for the U.S. defense? So right now, the, there's very little demand for U.S. Uh, defense needs because there's a significant stockpile that the government built back in the Cold War era. But having said that, uh, the Department of Energy that manages that stockpile has noted that it's a finite stockpile and it is dwindling. And uh, so right now for the weapons program, they have sufficient high assay material. But when it comes to tritium production, which is a component of the weapons program, they've already physically run out of that low enriched material for that program. So what they're doing is they're taking the high enriched or high assay uranium and they're actually physically down blending it to a lesser use. So I think uh, within a few years, we're going to see increased demand from the defense uh, realm here in the U.S. Uh, it is some demand, but it's nowhere near the commercial demand for uh, electric utilities. Uh, but interestingly, when it comes to defense needs, uh, we are a part of the nonproliferation treaties that uh, countries around the world have signed. So that material that we use for defense, it must be sourced domestically. We can't rely on Canada or Australia or, or any of the African nations to supply that. It must be supplied domestically. And uh, up until this year, domestic production in the U.S., it's just been almost non-existent. It's been residual cleanup, really. Uh, but going forward, we'll have to ramp up to fill that demand. Also, importantly, it has to be not just sourced in the U.S., but you have to use U.S. technology to process it. So right now, uh, we have one conversion facility that's up and running in uh, Metropolis, Illinois. It's the Converdine Works. And then for enrichment, there is only one enrichment facility in the U.S. Uh, it's owned by Urenco. It's in New Mexico. But that is foreign technology, so it can't be used for enrichment for defense. So the U.S. will need to establish some domestic technology for enrichment here in the coming years for defense needs. So it's a broken supply chain that is going to have to be fixed uh, in the not too distant future. And do you think it will be fixed relatively easy or is it difficult? Obviously, if you look from a, a mining perspective, um, it may be difficult to uh, get a resource, a uranium resource, and then obviously start mining. It does take a number of years, but on the, the obviously like the enrichment you, you mentioned, 
is it as easy to to start up a a, a, a Richmond operation, or does it is it a, a, a long tedious process as well? So there are a couple of U.S. companies that are looking into this and trying to develop technologies right now. And so uh, I think they'll be successful. At least one of them will be successful. The, but the cost is immense. Uh, you know, we're looking in, uh, you know, probably a couple of billion dollar range to be able to build out uh, an, an enrichment facility here in the U.S. to supply defense needs. Hopefully that would also be offset by uh, supplying material into the commercial needs. So they're going to get government support to do that because the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy knows that that's absolutely critical uh, to national security, not just the weapons program, but just as importantly, the nuclear Navy as well needs to source material from that. And uh, so, yeah, we are getting to the point where we're going to need to backfill that supply quickly here. And uh, those enrichers need to get stood up and they're going to need some government support to be able to do that. Um, what would be the uh, combined production capacity of your Lost Creek and Shelley Basin projects? Yeah, so Lost Creek, we are licensed at 1.2 million pounds per year in the well field. The plant is able to do 2.2 million pounds per year at Lost Creek. The 1 million pound difference between the two was intentional, and that was so we could bring in uh, processed material from either Shirley Basin or from one of our competitors uh, to toll process. So again, at the mine, 1.2 million pounds at Lost Creek, switching over to Shirley Basin, the license capacity there is 1 million pounds per year. So the total license capacity for our company is 2.2 million pounds per year. Uh, to put that into context, here in the US, our nuclear reactors, they burn 45 to 50 million pounds of U308 per year. So uh, we're a component of that feed going into that, but a lot more is needed and we're looking for opportunities to increase that supply going forward so we can help out our U.S. utilities and European utilities as well. Yeah. Um, just wanted to give us some of the financials of the, of the business and how the balance sheet looks. Yeah. So third quarter report, uh, we haven't come out with the fourth quarter yet, of course, but third quarter report, uh, we had $55 million in cash. So that's a really good, strong cash position to see us through ramp up at Lost Creek. Uh, when we start to look at building out our Shirley Basin facility, which again is fully uh, licensed, we're looking at probably just a little over $40 million to be able to build out the plant and the first three mine units. So we're going to be cutting it close there. We may need some cash needs uh, going into uh, late 2024, but uh, we've got a really good reputation of being pretty creative when it comes to financing. Uh, if you look at our dilution to our shareholders over the last 15 years, it's been minimal. And so that's because we've had good revenues from production at Lost Creek, but also because the state of Wyoming was incredibly supportive. Uh, they gave us the money uh, in a loan format uh, to build out Lost Creek at five and three quarters percent interest. And so as we need money going forward, we're going to try to find a creative way to do that instead of going out for a large equity raise. You know, for example, we may do a prepayment on an offtake agreement, uh, or we may uh, find uh, some other government program uh, that has low interest rates to build out uh, some critical infrastructure here in the U.S. And we do see there are opportunities there, but we don't want to dilute our shareholders 
Dilution is a dirty word in our company. I'm a significant shareholder and I don't want my shares diluted either. So I know how the shareholders uh, feel and that's what we're going to try to do going forward. So, but, you know, we've had some really good low cost production over the years. Um, 2015 was the year that we maximized production uh, at Lost Creek. And that particular year, our cash cost at the mine was a little over $13 a pound. And the all-in mine site cost that year was a little over $33 a pound. So we know we're not going to get back to those levels because of inflation. It's real. But we're going to work hard to get as close as we possibly can to those costs going forward. And, uh, you know, the more we produce, the cheaper it gets. So in the long run, it will be our objective to maximize production at both Lost Creek and Shirley Basin so that we can drive down the cost on a per pound basis that incre increases our profitability and our ability to go out and get sales contracts at a good profit margin. So we're really happy with where we are on the cash position. The company's in a strong place. Uh, I wouldn't trade uh, positions with any of our peers at this point. That's good to hear. And lastly, what's the sort of uh, short-term outlook over the next sort of six to 12 months? So we're going to continue to ramp up production at Lost Creek, uh, working as hard as we can to do that. Really pleased that we've got our manpower now. Really pleased that we have nearly all the drill rigs we need, uh, still short one or two, but we're working on contracts there to get them signed up. So that's been a long time coming, but we're going to continue to move forward in advanced production there. Uh, we're on the verge of making a decision on whether to bring uh, our Shirley Basin project into production. That decision, though, will really be predicated on some additional sales contracts, and we'll see where the price of uranium goes uh, going forward. But if both of those continue to move in the direction that we hope and believe they will, then I think we'll be making an affirmative decision to build out Shirley Basin. And uh, should comment on Shirley Basin, the timing there, uh, it's going to take a while. The physical build-out of Shirley Basin will likely only take six or seven months, but because of supply chain issues, we know that we're going to be waiting for equipment for a long time. In fact, our vendors are telling us a year to 18 months to get in some of the electrical equipment. So we're placing those orders now. We're trying to cut into that uh, long lead time so that we can get Shirley Basin built and up and running as quickly as we can once we make that decision. So supply chain issues are real. Uh, we've been managing them uh, quite efficiently and effectively, but it is something that we have to keep in mind. But those are our objectives uh, as far as production. And of course, uh, we want to continue to round out our contract book. Uh, we've got three of those good base contracts right now. We would love to sign three, four, five more contracts uh, you know, within the first quarter to two quarters of next year. And I think we've got a good opportunity to be able to do that. And of course, we'll look at M&A opportunities. There's been a lot of M&A in the uranium space. Uh, we continue to look very hard there to see if there's a good fit for us. Uh, but if we do get married, we want to get married with someone who looks like us. And so we'll keep looking. And if the right opportunity presents itself to pick up assets that we believe are producible in the near term, uh, we'll make the jump and we'll be aggressive. But until we identify the right partner or identify the right assets, we're not going to be aggressive on any bids. So that's kind of what the next uh, year uh, looks like for us. Uh, exciting times for sure. John, thank you for your time. Appreciate you uh, giving us an update on UR Energy and obviously educating our audience um, on uranium and also obviously what the uh, the, the US mining uh, 
environment is like at the moment, obviously around permitting as, as we discussed. So really appreciate your time. If our audience wants to reach out to you, um, if they want to follow uh, your story and the company's uh, progress, how can they go about doing that? What social media channels, platforms are you? Yeah, on? you bet. We're on Twitter. Uh, you are energy on Twitter. Uh, so we're easy to find there, but our website also has a lot of information, uh, www.ur-energy.com. And all of our contact information is in that as well. So yeah, if uh, anyone in the audience has questions or wants to, to uh, talk more, feel free to reach out. I'm generally uh, pretty easy to catch. Yeah, great. Um, thank you again for your time. All the best for 2024. Um, and perhaps you can uh, maybe come on later on in the year and give us an update. Sounds good, Rob. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Um, hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, obviously, uranium is going to be, or oh, I believe uranium is going to be a, a a commodity that's going to that's going to you're going to hear more and more of over the years. So, um, as always, appreciate your time. Thank you for listening. Please share this episode uh, among people within the mining community, but also people outside of uh, the mining community, um, especially around uranium. Some people may not know much about what uranium is. Some people may think it's it's bad, which it's not. Um, so by by sharing this with people outside of the mining industry, it's only, only going to increase um, awareness of, of what uranium is and the benefits it is going to have for us as humanity uh, moving forward with obviously the green revolution um, and everything along those lines. So really appreciate your support. Um, keep listening, keep sharing these episodes and until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.